The biggest investors in green energy are oil companies on this energy edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. I am Sean O'Reilly, joining you here from Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. And to my left are Fool Analysts, Taylor Muckerman and Tyler Crow. How are you today, gentlemen? Doing pretty well. They have to trust you that we're to your left. They're actually to my right. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, so, uh, nice day out today, guys. We're talking a little oil, talking a little energy. Uh, first, we wanted to talk about the big event in Golar last week. Stock popped, what, 24%? 24% on... in one day. And for a lot of For people... doing what they said they were going to exactly, do. Exactly. Doing exactly what they were planning on doing. For those... I guess that's what happens when you don't do what you're planning on doing for a while. Yeah. That is that is true. <laughs> Has, is that true? Has it been a while? Uh it's taken them a little while. LNG has been out. a long time coming. So, a lot of people may not necessarily know who Golar LNG are. They are a company that, for many many years, have been nat- uh, liquefied natural gas shippers. They own tankers moving natural gas around the world uh, to various from port to port. Uh, in the past couple of years, what they have done is decided to go on a new venture where they're going to build floating liquefied natural gas uh, ships which are going to be used in kind of remote locations that may be a little bit more difficult to build a floating LNG, uh, build a regular LNG export facility where you have all that liquefaction uh, uh, equipment and whatnot. And what they're saying is there will be an opportunity for this over the several years. And not to a whole lot of surprises, uh, this yesterday there was two big announcements. The first one is that they secured a 20-year contract to use one of these new floating liquefied natural gas uh, vessels. It will be off the coast of Equatorial Guinea, one of the large oil and gas hubs of the world today. Booming LNG Booming economy. Booming LNG economy. Don't forget their uh, awesome tourism industry. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Huge. Booming. So, uh, what it's going to end up doing, it's going to be about 2.2 million tons per year of an LNG, which will basically – According to Golar, will add up to about three hundred and fifty million dollars in EBITDA to its general partner, which it which it owns. Uh, and just to give a perspective to that, last year the partnership of Golar LNG, uh, its entire EBITDA for the year was three hundred twenty-five million dollars. So basically, what they're saying hence is, the stock pop. Hence the stock pop. Basically, what they're saying is we're going to more than double our EBITDA in the next couple of years when this thing actually comes online. So I've been reading a lot about like natural gas and all this stuff and. As I understand, it's a cleaner fuel, it's a better fuel, all that. Is this actually going to be the fuel? Like, are we going to be, as a civilization, increasingly using liquefied natural gas? We just can't today because of the lack of infrastructure? Well, don't tell that to the United States. And, I would never. Uh, because there's tons of infrastructure here. In fact, I think, like, Kinder Morgan has more pipeline than all, the whole country of China. So, eventually, once they get the infrastructure running, yes, natural gas could be the cleaner fuel the future um, until solar or wind can maybe power the world. But that seems to be a far-off notion. Um, some countries that need power that are, have no natural resources like Korea and Japan uh, are clamoring for natural gas. Europe uh, relies heavily on Russia. They're trying to wean themselves off of that dependence, as so we Japan's saw. So Japan's really, you think, the real market for natural gas? Well, like, if you look at um, a lot of the contracts from the export facilities proposed in the U.S., Korea and, and Japan are, are heavy buyers. There, yeah. yeah, one of the, the things is with natural gas, uh, for, for so long it's been a regional product. It's, it's a gas. It's so much harder to transport it economically uh, 
versus something like crude oil. You can, you know, put it into a re- relatively innocuous tanker, tanker and send it all around the world. Hence, you've got global prices. Uh, with natural gas, you've got these large regional disparities in prices, and liquefied natural gas is starting to kind of combine those two those those regions with a much more reasonable price disparity. Basically, what we're saying is, like here in the United States, it's about three dollar, a little bit. Under three dollars, I think, right now yeah. for a, a unit, what they call a thousand cubic feet of natural gas. Uh, once that's fully processed, uh, liquefied, transported, and regasified over in, so let's say, Asia Pacific region, China, it's about ten dollars per that same unit. But okay. because of the lack of natural gas in China, the economics actually work out so that we can tra- we can basically produce at three dollars here, take that. Five, six that it takes to transport, liquefy, regasify, and it still becomes economical spread, for everybody. Yeah. Everybody wins. What does liquefied natural gas look like? Just like paint the picture. Does it look like petroleum it's very in your cold? Car? It's, it's cold. Very, very cold and probably sub zero temperatures. Yeah, it has to be stored in refrigeration, and you can't actually like you know have an open pit of liquefied natural gas. If you look at a ship of liquefied natural gas, it looks like a giant cargo ship with. Like essentially the domes of basketball arenas on top of it. Oh wow! Yeah, it's pretty yeah. sweet. Maybe two or three of them. You know, uh, at least that's the ones I've seen. And um, now, increasingly, they're trying to power these ships with LNG with the gas. So yeah, so the, they'll be cleaner shipping. It'll be cleaner to ship it. It'll be cleaner to to use it once it gets to where it's going. And it'll be cheaper maybe for these ships to operate on the fuel that they're actually carrying. Very good. So uh, moving on, just. Lots of big changes, obviously, going on in the energy industry. Uh, Tyler, you were just telling me about uh, just a lot of big events this last month in the offshore industry, a little offshore drilling. Yeah, well, there. I mean, everybody is – well, not everybody because we're talking about energy here, and it's not exactly the most popular of investing topics sometimes. Mm-hmm. But if you were to look at one-month charts on a lot of offshore drilling companies, you know, your sea drills, your transoceans, they would look like they are just going absolutely gangbusters. Uh, last month, sea There are dr- tech stocks now. Look yeah. at this. Yeah, yeah, they really are. Yeah. It's like a damn daddy up, IPO. Yeah, sea drills up 50% over the past month. Uh, transoceans up 28%. Ensco's up 25%. Now, these numbers look huge, and one of the biggest reasons that we We've seen that is that uh, the price of Brent crude is up 15% over the month and is about somewhere around $68 today. Basically, what's going on is I would love to come up with some fancy fundamental reason as to why this is actually happening. Uh, you know, it would sound really smart to investors. But the, the real thing is, is just like it, it seems that the kind of downtrodden oil market that we had over the couple of years, last few months, excuse me, have been uh, a little a little overzealous. Maybe it went a little too far and people started to realize that the, su- the supply glut that we had was not as great as everybody was projecting. And so we're seeing a, a slight uptick in oil prices as a reflection of that. Uh, physically, there hasn't been a whole lot of changes. Uh, U.S. production has gone down a little bit, so the, the worries about oversupply aren't as great. We did just great. get our first drawdown on supplies today, as I heard, though. So we're seeing a little bit of production uh, reduction, so we could see a little bit of that supply glut start to relax a little bit and make oil prices obviously better. But before anybody sees those up 50%, up 28%, and goes, Oh my God! This must be you know the next great thing. Clouds let's just let's yeah. keep this in perspective. Just look at where they came from first. Let's, let's put this in perspective over a one-year period. Yeah. Those exact same companies: Sigil's down fifty-nine percent, 
Transocean's down 55%, and Ensco's down 46%. Oof. Yeah, um, I'm personally an Ensco shareholder. And so I'm a C-drill holder, so... That's fun. Yeah. Um, but I have been looking to buy more because I still believe in it. It's it's a multi-year investment, obviously, because it's the most expensive oil to drill for when you're talking about several thousand feet of water to get through before you get to several thousand feet of earth before you get to several hundred gallons, several hundred thousand gallons of oil. Um, and you haven't seen any bankruptcies. So these companies have been able to survive. Um, some of them are on the brink of it more than others, but Ensco is one company that I still feel safe with. Um, best credit rating of the bunch when you look at big offshore oil producer or drillers, excuse me. They have lost a couple contracts, one with BP in particular, but BP has to pony up some cash in order to break that contract. Not as much as they would have over the period of, of what that contract would have given ENSCO, but still, it's not a complete loss. But if you continue to see that, you're going to have to suffer a little bit longer as a shareholder of any of these companies. Um, you look at companies that are exposed to state-owned oil companies, you might want to be a little bit more nervous than companies that are exposed to privately or publicly owned oil drillers, uh, oil producers, just because they typically have more flexible contract terms. Uh, they can negotiate prices or they can outright cancel it without having those those much larger fees like a, like a BP did with Ensco. I think they canceled one with um, C-Drill and they canceled a few earlier. Um, cost them about $350 million in, in in uh, payments that they had to dole out. But I don't think anybody's been hurt as much as Diamond Offshore because they've been exposed to Petrobras and Pemex, and uh, those two country, those two companies run by Brazil and Mexico, respectively, um, have been slicing and dicing offshore. Yeah, and when you also have, in the case of Diamond Offshore, when you have the one of the oldest and, I guess you could say, least technologically advanced yeah, that's uh, a big fleets point. in the business, it's going to be much harder for somebody like that to get contracts in the future because we are seeing with offshore drilling, they're having to go deeper. They're having to go to more advanced drilling techniques, uh, looking at basically what are called high pressure uh, reservoirs. Takes a little bit, uh, it takes a higher specification rig to do that. Going into the Arctic, you need to be uh, harsh environment ready. And companies like Diamond don't necessarily have the fleet to do that. And if you look at the companies that do, you have Sea Drill, you have Ansco, they're the ones that actually have the fleets that are going to be capable to do this. And on the really, really long term, those are going to be the companies that are probably going to have the most success. You're putting the, you're putting these companies in, in, a, in a strainer right now, and you're really going to see who the strongest ones are, much like OPEC thinks, hey, we can kind of go ahead and eliminate some of the higher cost shale producers in the U.S., if this lasts longer, you're going to eliminate some of the higher cost and older fleets of offshore drillers that just can't compete. Everyone can compete when oil is uh, over $100 a barrel, and obviously it's not anymore. So it's going to really expose those that were just taking advantage of um, lofty lofty prices for oil. That's an important, uh, important takeaway for any investor out there. Just remember, any bonehead can make money at $100 oil. That's right. It's the ones at $50 oil that you want to look for. So uh, just kind of an investing takeaway. You guys are talking like all these stocks are down 50, 60 percent. Mm-hmm. Brent crude's sitting at, you know, I don't know, 66, 68. W2I just, you know, hanging out at about 60. I don't want to say, oh, are these undervalued? Because that kind of depends on what oil prices does. And mm-hmm. we might as well flip a coin there. But do they, they've obviously had a, bit, a little bit of a relief rally here. Do they price in all reasonable risks going forward? Or are they a little too optimistic now? I, I could see some of the run up 
a little overly optimistic, at least in the short term. I, I would still feel comfortable adding shares if I'm holding for five years or more. But if I'm only going to hold this for the next year or so, offshore after a run-up like this might not be the best place to look. How's the best way to explain this? They, I would like to say they've priced in any foreseeable risks, but when it comes to the oil industry, obviously well, last year we in saw the, in the great words risks. of Donald Rumsfeld, there are known unknowns <laughs> and there are unknown unknowns, <laughs> and you got to watch out for those unknown unknowns. You'd make a great defense secretary, Tyler. Yeah. Uh, so before we wrap it up here, uh, real quick, you just shot an article over to me before we went on, Tyler, and it was uh, how the biggest green energy investors are actually oil companies like Total. What's going on here? Are they kind of seeing the writing on the wall? or? Well, I, I don't know if they're seeing the writing on the wall. Maybe um, maybe they just want to appear appear green. And some of them do, um, like you mentioned, um, Total, I think they're doing it right. They're an investor in a solar producer, SunPower. But some of these companies, they're trying to do it on their own. Well, as, BP, correct me if I'm wrong, was branding themselves as Beyond Petroleum a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, they were. And then yeah. sold out of all of their wind yeah. assets when yeah. they had to kind of pony up for the Deepwater Horizon spill. And uh, I think, I'm pretty sure Exxon has sold most of its biofuel um, operations as well. Um, and yeah, so maybe those companies at least realized, hey, stick to our bread and butter. Mm even if it's hurting us right now. Um, eventually, you could understand that a company with as much money as Exxon, if oil does start to really appear to be ending as a fuel source, they could just go up and buy someone that produces renewable energy. But those those trying to get into it right now on the side, I don't see it being much of an impact. Yeah, I, I, this may be more of a rant than a question. Um, but and I don't mean this in any way to to belittle moving towards cleaner energy, but big oil companies, they're filled with petroleum engineers, geologists, chemists, etc. They are really really good at developing, producing, refining oil and gas. They are not solar panel manufacturers. They aren't wind turbine manufacturers. They probably are lousy at evaluating the electricity market and building utility scale solar projects. Uh, they would be. They it's a question are. of specialization. They have been for years. They've been lousy at alternative energy investments. Mm -hmm. So just in just about every other industry, uh, you know, if, you, if we go into tech or whatever, if somebody is moving drastically in another direction, like having to completely learn expertise in something else and develop a new product, develop kind of go off into an adventure, it, it would scare the bejesus out of people because they're not good at it and they're trying to compete in a whole new space. But yet there is this large movement of saying that big oil companies, because they're big and they're oil and they you know, work in energy, they have to move over to alternative energy space. And I just don't see why it would make sense when they would probably be lousy at it when there are so many other companies that are getting pretty damn good in this space right now. I mean, if you look at, like you said, SunPower, most efficient panel, panel manufacturer in the world, they're looking to double their capacity in the next three to four years. You've got First Solar, 59% uh, of their utility scale backlog is overseas, and they're one of the leading panel manufacturers and builder of utility scale projects. And then you got to, you know, on the residential end here in the United States, you've got Solar City. They own close to 40% of the market. Uh, they're growing at almost double annually, 100% compounded annual growth rate. And they're actually having to build, uh, bought and build their own panel manufacturer because mm -hmm. just to keep up their, with their own demand. 
So and they bought a panel install installation panel company, so they're going to they're totally integrated. Yeah. So you're looking at. Big oil basically saying we're going to have to take on these guys who are doing a really, really good job and we're probably going to stink at it for a really, really long time. It just doesn't seem to make sense. If you if you want to invest in energy and are bummed out by the fact that it's you know oil, big oil companies, invest in one of these guys because they're doing a heck of a lot better job than any other so big Total's oil So Total is making the right move there, obviously. I, yeah, if – if a if an oil company wants to get involved, I think the the move that Total made by taking an equity uh, interest in one of the maybe even one of these companies I just mentioned, probably your best bet. You you buy out one of these, hope that it really turns out. You know, with these it's it's done so far, and if it doesn't, they've made an honest effort. But don't try to get into a business that you, in some rights, have no expertise in. And you don't have to really sense. worry about transparency because. I would question whether or not these companies, like I don't think Exxon really gave investors much to go on how how they were improving or how their biomass was pro- progressing along, until they were just like, well, we give up, we're going to sell it. Um, but if your if your company is investing equity wise into another solar company or a wind power producer, you can just go look at their 10k or their quarterly filings and figure out exactly how they're doing, translate that on a percentage basis over to how that's going to impact your big energy investment or your big oil investment, and then figure it out that way. So if they are trying to change course, they better be darn sure they're transparent about it from an investor standpoint. Very good. So moral of the story, stick with what you're good at. Pretty much. Stick to your guns. Mr. Krovis from Muckerman, thank you for your thoughts. Appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for listening, fools. And before we go, I wanted to make our listeners aware of a special offer for all industry-focused listeners. It is for our Stock Advisor newsletter if you're looking for more foolish stock ideas. It's our flagship newsletter started more than 10 years ago by Motley Fool co-founders Tom and Dave Gardner. We're offering the lowest price out there for our industry-focused listeners. It is $98 for a two-year subscription to Stock Advisor. You'll get two stock recommendations every single month with insight from our team of analysts. Just go to focus.fool.com to take advantage of that deal. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. That's it for us, fools. Thanks for listening, and fool on. Fool on.